Welcome to Sofa Security Chat Chat, episode 248, for the 29th of July, 2016. I'm Chester Wisniewski, and this week I have John Shire as my guest. How's it feel to be the, the guest instead of the host, John? Yeah, it's a bit different, but it's kind of fun being on the other side of the microphone, answering the questions instead of posing them. So yeah, happy, happy to be here. Well, next week, of course, we're going to be uh, off to fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada for the B-Sides Las Vegas Black Hat and DEF CON conferences. So uh, just a reminder to any listeners that may be attending, if you're there, look us up. Uh, you can drop us an email, drop us a note on Twitter, whatever it is, and uh, you know maybe we can get together. It might be fun. And with that, let's get into the news. Bad news for one of the more popular password managers in the world, uh, Tavis Ormandy, a researcher at Google discovered a flaw in the LastPass password manager that apparently allowed him to do pretty much dump all your passwords remotely by simply visiting a website. Uh, what's, uh, you know, what's the danger level here? Should we be setting off the, the alarm bells? Well, I, I don't think we should be setting off the alarm bells. First of all, if you are a LastPass user, they've already issued a patch for this, so there is a fix available out there. So go and get the fix. Uh, the fix in this particular case, uh, it only affected uh, Firefox versions, and it's uh, 4.1.21a is the one that you want to get. On the bigger question of uh, you know password managers themselves, I think it's still the kind of thing that you want to be including in your in your security routine, if you will. Right? Password managers are incredibly useful. They help us follow the advice of you know one password, one site, long and strong and complex. Complex. They help you make sure that you're not putting in the right password in the wrong site, for example, in the case of like, let's say a banking site impersonation. So all of those things are still valid. It doesn't mean that we should stop using password managers now. And uh, but you still have to you know, follow the right password hygiene again with the password manager itself. So to protect the password database, you still need to use a long and strong and complex password. And if possible, um, and I believe all password managers now support uh, two factor authentication turn that on and use it. Well, yeah, and for folks who want to know more about the second factor, of course, you can go to nakedsecurity.sophos.com and do a search for the numeral 2 FA and you'll find an article by you, actually, uh, talking about uh, multi-factor authentication. It's also a good idea maybe to use multi-factor in conjunction with the sites and the password manager, right? So if you're using Facebook yes. or Twitter, exactly, those kind of things, uh, go ahead and, you know, use their second factor as well. And, uh, you know, I personally have, you know, three really good passwords memorized, one for my main uh, access to Sophos, one for my uh, primary financial account, and one for my password manager. Those things are distinct and they're not written down and they're, you know, not the same. But then the password manager stores pretty much everything else. And, and I, I, I like that, right? Because I, I can't be fished for the vast majority of things because the password manager just won't enter it into the wrong site and those types of things. So while this is a little scary, probably not something to panic over. If you're not comfortable storing your passwords in the cloud or with browser plugins that can be exploited the way Tavis did this time, uh, take a look around. There's lots of different password management solutions out there. I, I just think that you need one of them. I don't think it's um, safe to construct things the way I see many people doing it. I, I, I know people that use uh, one long memorized string and then they tack onto the end, you know, dash Google, dash Yahoo, dash LinkedIn. Uh, that's really easy to spot in a cracked password list. Um, not only that, many of the password databases that are being stolen these days aren't even necessarily hacked. I mean, some websites are just crappy enough to store your passwords in plain text in the database. And so uh, it's not even about brute forcing your pattern. If it's an obvious pattern in any way, that would enable somebody to get in. And I I'm uncomfortable with that. I like password managers as well. 
That's right. And as you say, there there are many of them out there. Uh, figure out what your minimum required capabilities are for the password manager that you want to use. Uh, Wikipedia has a handy little matrix uh, reference that gives you things like, you know, do they support 2FA? Do they have a mobile version? You know, And it doesn't include all of the password managers that are available out there, but it does include some of the more popular ones. So do your research, figure out what fits your needs and go ahead and start using one. You know, when we talk about second factors to many people, that ends up being maybe some sort of biometric authentication. You know, there's Microsoft Hello built into Windows 10 now that can recognize a, a face to unlock a, a Windows computer. But one of the more popular ones that it's getting into the, I was going to say the hands, but more like the pockets of more and more users these days are the smartphone with the fingerprint sensor, right? Apple introduced that in the iPhone a couple generations ago. Almost all the Google devices that ship or Android devices that ship now with the Marshmallow operating system also include a fingerprint sensor. But in, in this case, uh, the, the one that brought up this story, uh, it was before it was built into the operating system, Samsung started offering the ability to do fingerprint recognition to unlock uh, the the Galaxy series phones. And it turns out maybe dead men can talk. Uh, this is a weird one. <laughs> yeah. So there were some researchers at Michigan State University that were approached by law enforcement uh, to try and help law enforcement unlock a phone uh, belonging to a dead man. So the story goes that this person was murdered and the police believe that there may be some information on stored on this person's phone that will help them lead them to the perpetrator. Now, it, it, you know, they didn't have to go and cast the dead man's fingerprints. Uh, in this case, this person had been known to law enforcement. He had been arrested before so the fingerprints were on file and basically the researchers were being asked to uh, create a 3D representation of the two-dimensional prints that they already had on file. Uh, they did this eventually using printable ink, basically that had some metal filings in it to to add capacitance because that's the way these things work nowadays on, on phones. Uh, but what was interesting to us, and, and as we discussed prior to the podcast, was because they were using a Samsung Galaxy S6, there might not have been the regular you know timeouts that are associated with things like stock Nexus phones or Apple iPhones. Oh, that's Right. I mean, the inclusion of APIs in iOS and Android now sort of have a, uh, a standardized way of offering some sort of uh, additional authentication. And in, in, in both cases, if you're using Marshmallow or newer on Android phones, of course, I'm sure it'll still be supported in the new recently named Nougat version, the next release of Android. And of course, iOS has had this uh, since the introduction of the fingerprint sensor in the iPhone 6 and 5, I believe. The, you know, if you reboot the phone, you got to enter your password. If you have too many false fingerprint attempts that don't work, you've got to re-enter your password. Uh, if you don't uh, uh, unlock the device for 48 hours, you have to enter your password. So it's not always that easy for the police to unlock a device with simply a fingerprint. But like you say, I mean, the, the, the Galaxy S6 was launched before the Marshmallow operating system. Therefore, it's Samsung's own thing. And apparently the researchers were able to make a series of attempts to unlock the device until they could refine printing the fingerprint. And to me, that's kind of encouraging for fingerprint authentication, actually, because it means that they can't just get it right the first time, even when they have official, you know, fingerprints, say, from the police. So the truth of the matter is constructing these prints to unlock a device is not a trivial matter. And now with this kind of more standardized way of saying, mm, if the fingerprint doesn't seem like it's working, perhaps we want to enforce some kind of a password policy that that adds another layer. You know, many people say, oh, I don't want to use fingerprints because the, the government can force me 
to give up my fingerprints and the government can't force me to give up my password. That's a really American centric viewpoint. Most of us in the world don't necessarily have that as the law in our jurisdiction. You know, I, I, I think I probably just end up sitting in jail for a very long time if I decided to not unlock my device and I was sus uh, suspected of a crime. So uh, I think you should probably make these decisions based on convenience more, right? I mean, do you, do you want to enter a 25 character password every time you want to unlock your phone? I well, I, I used to, um, and as you say, you know, just to back up a little bit, that they they really didn't have a a foolproof set of prints, right? They actually had to use some computer software to fill in the missing pieces of the set of prints that they had to eventually construct that set of prints. So it, it did take them a little bit of extra work to do that. Uh, and back to the question at hand, which is, you know, do I want that convenience? Absolutely. I, I used to have a 24, let's call it 20, I think it was about 24 character password on my phone. And, and due to the, the corporate timeouts that were set, uh, you know, I would have to enter that in every every so often about 20 30 times a day sometimes and so it got to be a bit of a nuisance and you know personally i thought 24 was probably a good number probably a bit stronger than most but then i kind of had to knock that down because it was becoming too cumbersome now with the advent of the fingerprint sensor on my uh, nexus 6p i'm able to go back to a nice long strong password and include that with a fingerprint i get the ease of use of being able to get into my phone without a lot of hardship, but in the instances where I do need to provide extra security, I do have a nice, long, complex password. Well, yeah, and let's remember that, you know, most people with iPhones before Touch ID were using a four-digit PIN. And so let's let's just make sure that we're always moving forward, I think, is kind of what my thoughts are. I mean, that, yeah, okay, um, you know, perhaps uh, if you're dead, the police can lift your fingerprints or maybe you have a criminal record or something and they already have your fingerprints. These are pretty corner case situations compared to standing on the subway and unlocking your phone with 4141 where the digits pop up out of the screen giant and, and anybody could observe you entering it. I think the fingerprints a heck of a lot safer. Yeah, it sure is. And and in the Android security report that was published earlier this year, uh, they did note that adding the fingerprint technology has basically meant that more people are now adopting lock screens on their phones, right? So they're actually uh, making their phones more secure as a, as, as a result. Yeah, going from nothing to something is an improvement. And as long as we're improving, I'm feeling good about it. Now, we, we got to be careful on what you rely on when it comes to security, though. And, and that, that's always an important reminder. And I think some people put a little too much faith in the Tor network or the Onion router, uh, the dark web. I mean, there's a million different names people use. But the, the truth of the matter is it's an interesting technology. It's important for uh, anonymity and privacy. And when used correctly, it's a pretty cool tool. But now there's something called honey onions. Can you tell us a little bit about honey onions and is this something that should change the way I use Tor? Sure. So honey onions, uh, this comes out of a of some research from Northeastern University in Boston. And what the researchers did in this case was they set up some Tor hidden services. And basically the way you get to a Tor hidden service is you have to enter its cryptographic, it's an 80-bit cryptographic dot onion address. And the way that Tor knows where these exist is by registering that address which, with what are called uh, hidden service directories. And so the conjecture here was, well, let's say we put a hidden service on there. So if, I, if I've got a hidden service chat and I want to keep it out of your hands, for example, I don't want you to know where it is. I'm going to set up this hidden service. I'm going to register it with a directory, but then I won't tell you the address and you won't ever know it's there. You won't be able to get to it. What they wanted to know was if they did this, where they set up a hidden service, told a directory because... That's what you do when you set up a hidden service, but didn't tell anybody else, didn't broadcast its its presence, 
what would happen. And in this case, they found that right away, they started getting hits to those hidden services. So somehow the word got out, right? So somehow either the hidden services themselves were contacting the server and probing it, or they were then somehow broadcasting the existence of that or, or making it known that there was another service that had popped up in their directory and other uh, clients were probing or other servers were probing it. So uh, really interesting research. And it really goes to show that as we've pointed out in other stories, using Tor isn't this impermeable cloak of anonymity and security. Uh, you really still have to take care when you're doing this, when you're using Tor, when you're setting up hidden services, because some of these probes that were coming in were actually looking for vulnerabilities on the servers. So if you're going to set up a, a hidden service, treat that server like you would with any other server that you set up, uh, secure it as best as you can using security best practices, patch the servers, and do what you would do if you were putting it on the clear and open internet. Yeah, precisely. And I mean, operational security is often forgotten. And, you know, if you ask Ross Ulbricht, he can remind you that it results in life in prison if you happen to be committing crimes using the technology. You know, OPSEC's important. We see crypto criminals getting hacked to release crypto keys. We see all kinds of things where people are making mistakes about one aspect of what they're doing because they're maybe over-reliant on being hidden or secret or private. I mean, that's not to say that Tor can't you know, be useful. Uh, and I use Tor on a regular basis in my research, but you always need to, to to keep in mind that you're you're leaking little bits of information and perhaps logging into Facebook over Tor and then proceeding to commit a crime a few minutes later is probably a pretty bad idea. Moving along on the the secrets and privacy route, since that's primarily what uh, Tor is used for, um, we have Ed Snowden in the news again. And uh, in fact, he's in the news with a friend of mine, uh, Bunny Huang. Apparently, they're working on trying to devise a device that can tell you whether you, your own devices may be spying on you. Yeah, so this is a, a hardware sleeve that you would s slide your iPhone into in this case that gives you information about what radio signals are are still being broadcast or are available on your phone at, at any given time. Um, so they monitor things like the cellular antenna, the GPS, Wi-Fi antennas. And what they've done is they've actually, you basically have to crack open a, an iPhone and and solder in some additional connections uh, because what they're trying to get to here is they're trying to get to a place where even though you may turn your phone on to airplane mode, uh, we've seen it before where devices are seemingly inactive, but they're still broadcasting or they're still you know leaking RF inf information. And so what they're trying to do with the sleeve is make it so that you can be A, notified if there's any radio signal that is still active on the phone and be able to cut that radio signal by, again, having soldered in these... And if you, there's a paper that is being linked to from the Naked Security article. If you're interested in this kind of stuff, it's got uh, all the information and some imagery. But they're actually soldering in physical connections to break some of the, uh, you know, the power inputs and, and signal inputs so that that can then be displayed and controlled from this outer sleeve. Sounds interesting. I mean, it, it, it is one of these things. Uh, it's important to remember, right? Like we're surrounded by devices that may or may not be listening and we're not sure who may be behind them and whether they're listening, right? I mean, you've got Alexa and you've got Siri and you've got OK Google. And I've now just uh, triggered at least a thousand devices uh, <laughs> by just mentioning them, not to mention things like, you know, my DVR, right? I mean, it's 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 off right now, but I've programmed it to record Mr. Robot. And 
it can turn itself back on in order to follow my commands. And it's it's one of these things, right? I mean, like Larry Page might be sitting listening to this podcast right now in pre-production uh, through my Android device that's sitting around the table. And I, I don't really have any way to know. So I, I think this is kind of interesting, especially for people uh, who may be uh, dissidents or or journalists or people that, that are worried about being spied on in a way that could endanger them. That's kind of interesting. And, and the device is pretty thorough from what I can tell. It looks like it, it doesn't just look to see if the cellular modem is engaged and, and communicating with the cellular network. It also monitors the GPS, the Bluetooth, uh, pretty much anything on the device that can allow it to remotely communicate with somebody or or be geolocated in a way that could endanger someone. That's exactly it. And, and I think this is really valuable research because there are those people out there that do need this kind of protection. Uh, and I'm not talking about spies and crooks, right? The, the sort of the however you think about it, the really good end, the really bad end. I'm talking about those people that legitimately need to have this kind, this level of security uh, for their personal safety. And research like this is important. And I think, um, you know, I, I, I'm really looking forward to seeing this device. I believe that because they're pretty much self-funding a lot of this, uh, the, the development of this is, is stated to be quite uh, slow, so we're probably not going to see anything for another couple of years. Maybe they'll get a whole bunch of money and, and be able to produce this device a lot sooner, but uh, I'm, for one, I'm looking forward to something like this. Well, that's good news. I'm glad it's buying me some time because I, I just started a Kickstarter for hollowed out blocks of lead that you could carry around, that you could stick your phone inside to prevent it from communicating with, with spies and, and terrorists. So perhaps I can get my Kickstarter launched before they get this off the ground. Yeah, I guess we'll just have to uh, let the market decide which one they prefer. And uh, a reminder to everyone, of course, today, the day we're recording, sadly, which means when you hear this, uh, it won't be the day, but uh, today is Sysamin Day, and we've done some rather fun and interesting things at Naked Security and at Sophos to help our Sysadmins celebrate. And uh, I think my favorite thing was uh, uh, Mark Stockley, our colleague, uh, wrote an article for Naked Security with a handy flowchart. So IT can be complicated, and, and we recognize that. That's why at Sophos we try to build simple products. And uh, to, to help you simplify a little bit, Mark put together a, a pretty handy dandy flowchart and um, we have a video too as well don't we yeah we do we have a video uh, with some muppets in it uh, some of them you may recognize and and don't forget that all answers can be found on serverfault.com that's true so if, if you want to check out some of what we've done and we've got a free kit you can sign up that will mail you that'll help you with your it duties you can go to sophos.com slash sysadmin and and of course for for helping most of us are sysadmins even if we don't want to be i'm a sysadmin for my family and my friends most of the time it seems and so uh, also don't forget that we offer sophos antivirus with our web filter filtering and category filtering and, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff to to uh, to help you uh, monitor what the kids are up to on the computer and, and keep it safe from malware and viruses. You can get that at home.suffice.com and, and, uh, and be your amateur sysadmin too, even if it may not be your full-time job. And on that note, we'll conclude Sofa Security Chat Chat 248. As always, you can find all of our podcasts at uh, on our RSS feed, on iTunes, in the TuneIn app, um, or even over now at the Google Play Store. And uh, the latest security news is always available at nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And don't forget, if you're at Black Hat DEF CON, come, come say hi. And until next time, stay secure.